Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, June 26, 2022, and this is show number 894. Well, Steve and I are down in San Diego. We had the great pleasure of taking care of Forbes and Sienna, two of our grandchildren, while Lindsay and Nolan were gone for the weekend. And we had a blast, played in the pool the whole time, but that's why you might hear a difference in my microphone. You know, in 2020, Steve and I were supposed to go on a trip to Iceland, but of course that didn't happen. We rescheduled it to 2021, and of course it still didn't happen. But barring any catastrophes, we will actually be getting to make the trip in July of this year. It's a pretty cool trip organized by UCLA alumni. We'll be traveling around Iceland on a relatively small cruise ship with less than 200 people. But the coolest part is that we'll be traveling with astrophysicist Dr. Andrea Gez. Now, Dr. Gez, you may have heard of her name. She won the Nobel Prize in Physics for her part in the discovery of the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy. Cool as that. Well, anyway, every night she'll be giving lectures, and if she's anywhere near as good as the astrophysicist who traveled with us in Chile for the total eclipse a few years ago, the lectures will be my favorite part. I mean, I suppose Iceland will be cool too. Anyway, I'm telling you all of this because this means that Alistair and Bart will be keeping the Nosilicast ship afloat in our absence. This also means they need your help. They need you to make recordings for them for the show. So poke around in your toys and find something fun to review. Dig through your apps and see if you can find something that would be interesting for the NoSilicast audience. Maybe you've got an iOS app or a keyboard or a Bluetooth accessory that gives you delight. Tell us about it. Bart and Alistair are doing a huge favor for me doing this, so please don't let them down. We need to keep the record going of no missed NoSilicast in over 17 years. So I'd like to see these get to us by July 6th so that they know for sure they have content to depend on. I will have little or no internets on the ship, so you should include me on distribution, but I want you to make sure you send them to both Alistair and Bart, and there'll be links in the show notes for sure to podcasting at bartafisser.net and zcarge at me.com. Now, I'm sure you couldn't get that through audio, but again, it'll be in the show notes. So thank you very much in advance from both of them. Let's keep this 17-year streak going. In this week's episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond, I'm joined by longtime Nocilla castaway Seamus Lavery. Seamus started posting photos of his black lab, Quaid, to the live chat room recently, and then explained that he's a puppy raiser, not Quaid, Seamus is the puppy raiser, for guiding eyes for the blind. He agreed to come on the show to tell us what it's like to be a puppy raiser, what his responsibilities are, what he's supposed to teach Quaid, and the uphill road it is for Quaid to qualify to be a service dog for the blind. Okay, here's something funny. Bart is a Belgian living in the Republic of Ireland. Seamus is a Northern Irishman who lived for 12 years in Belgium. He now lives in, the, in Washington, D.C. Anyway, his accent is delightful. His story is fascinating, and it really helped me understand what goes into raising a service dog before they actually start their training for the blind. So it's an awesome episode. Look for Chit Chat Across the Pond number 734, Seamus Lavery on Raising a Service Dog for Guiding Eyes. In March of this year, I wrote a blog post entitled, I Have Made Fire! Shortcut with Shell Script to Mount a NAS Share. I was so proud of my little self because I'd written my first Shell Script to solve a real problem and I'd used a shortcut with it just to prove that I could, not because it was necessary. In May, I wrote another article entitled, How Did I Break My Keychain Access for My Local Server? 
in which I explained that the fragility of shortcuts made my previous solution entirely unstable. In that second article, I explained how I tried to fix my solution and ended up somehow breaking my iCloud keychain so that I couldn't mount servers without pushing a button that said connect. In a few thousand words, I explained that I had found a default write command that stopped that dreaded connect button pop-up. I thought I was on the road to getting my original Hazel script to work. All of that is still true, but the story isn't over, because I still had to rewrite the script to include the functionality that was in the fragile shortcut. For more than a month now, I've been spending hours and hours trying to get this to work. I've asked the community in Slack, and L. Butler, also known as Lewis Butler, jumped in to help. He gave me an idea that ended up being pivotal to the solution. The script goes inside Hazel, and the developer Paul Kim has also been very helpful. As I continued to run into trouble, I even tried rubber ducking the problem. This is a technique where you try to explain the problem to an inanimate object, and the very act of trying to explain the problem out loud helps you find your own solution. Kevin Alder sent me a set of rubber ducks, and I keep one on top of my monitor for just this purpose. I've even named my rubber duck Kevin. I explained the problem to detail in detail. I'll get that right yet. I explained the problem in detail to Kevin, the duck, but he wasn't much help. Finally, I convinced listener and real-life friend Ed Tobias to rubber duck the problem with me in a video session. He's a super nerd and he does a lot of coding, but he often tries to tell me that he's not a real programmer because he kind of does more hackery to get things done. I think that is a real programmer. In any case, I knew that Ed would be the perfect person to work through the problem with me and hopefully I'd be able to figure it out. Now, I promise I'm not going to actually talk about any code at all in this section and still walk you through why this was such a sticky problem to solve. It's really a story of the inadequacies of the tools we have and the constraints Apple has caused in the name of security. In order to explain, let me remind you of the problem I'm trying to solve in the first place. I use the awesome app Hazel from noodlesoft.com to monitor my podcasting folders on my Mac. When the enclosed files are older than two weeks, Hazel whisks these files off of my internal drive and moves them to a share on my Synology and deletes them locally. This is a critical automation for me because I create around four gigabytes of audio files every single week. If I don't have Hazel cleaning up these files, I could easily run out of disk space and be in real trouble. Now, my Hazel world works great as long as I'm on my home network. The minute I leave my house, Hazel complains that it can't find my Synology, so it can't clean up these folders for me. I am barraged with notifications because Hazel so desperately wants to do her job. Hazel does have an off switch, so for years I've been turning her off when I'm away from home as soon as I start getting these notifications that she can't find my server. It's annoying to have to do that because it also means I have to remember to turn her back on when I get home. The other problem with turning Hazel off is she also watches some other folders that don't require me to be on my home network. So I'd really kind of like to keep those rules working. For example, she watches my delete me folder and throws away files after they've passed a certain age. All of those rules stop running if I turn Hazel off completely. Instead of turning off all of Hazel, I could also just pause the rules that talk to my server. But that means a lot of manual intervention on my part defeating the purpose of automation. And of course, all of those servers have to be unpaused upon my return to my home network. I should say all of those rules have to be unpaused when I return. Anyway, I wanted to do one simple thing. I wanted to tell Hazel, if I'm on my home network, mount the server and move the files. If I'm not on my home network, don't even try to mount the server and just fail silently. 
Well, the first piece of the puzzle was how to tell Hazel whether I'm on my home network. That was pretty easy. I figured out how to send one single ping to the IP of my Synology. If the ping returns, then I'm on my home network. If there's no reply to the ping, then I must be out gallivanting around on other networks. So Hazel has two distinct parts. The first part is the conditional section. My conditional statement for my podcasting files is if a file is older than two weeks. On Lewis Butler's advice, I put my ping test to see if I'm on the network up in that conditional section. In Hazel, you get to choose whether any or all rules have been met. So I said it had to meet all conditions. So the conditional section then says, if Hazel can ping ping the Synology and it's found a file that's older than two weeks, then it is allowed to proceed to the next section where the actions actually take place. I was able to determine that the conditional section was working properly by using a built-in function of Hazel, even though I hadn't set up the action section yet. You can choose a file and Hazel will tell you whether any or all of the rules have been matched, including my, my script to ping the server. I was able to flip back and forth between my main network and my guest network where the Synology was unavailable and Hazel behaved as expected. All right, the second half of Hazel is where you tell her what action to take. My goal for a script in the action section was pretty simple. We know we're on the home network because we passed both of the conditional rule tests. The action statement should have been the easy part. I only needed Hazel to mount the share and then move the old files to the server. This is where I ran into the difficulty with Apple's security constraints. While I can use Command-K to mount my server from the Finder GUI, if I use the mount command from the terminal or a shell script, I get a pop-up showing my credentials, and it requires me to push the darn button, even though my credentials are stored in iCloud Keychain. Obviously, if I'm trying to have a script run to do this, I can't have it pushing a GUI button. Now, this is different from the problem I described in the post I was talking about entitled, How Did I Break My Keychain Access for My Local Server? In that case, I was just doing a, do you really want to connect button? But it wasn't asking about my login credentials, so this is a whole different problem. I chatted with Lewis about the fact that I couldn't mount the server without this GUI interaction, and he suggested a different approach. He built a very simple Automator script to mount his server, and he thought that might work for me. So Automator is a drag-and-drop environment where you can also add scripts, so that sounded like a good path. Following Lewis's lead, I dragged in the action called Get Specified Servers, where I typed in the SMB mount command for my server and its share. The second action to drag in is simply Connect to Servers. As Lewis promised, I can run that Automator script and my server share mounts with no pop-up from the GUI asking if I really want to connect. I was so happy! But my joy was short-lived. These two simple actions work perfectly unless the server share, or they, they, they work perfectly if the server share is not already mounted. If the server share is already mounted, Automator throws an error. Okay, that's just silly. Come on, just ignore it, right? Just, just okay, you've already got it. Just say, yeah, 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 I already got it. Why do you have to throw an error? I would need to tell Automator to only try to mount the server if it's not already mounted. That doesn't sound too hard. Well, cue the foreboding music right here. This is when I discovered a huge limitation of Automator. It has no logic capabilities whatsoever. It has no concept of if this, then that. I should be able to work around that. I figured I'd just write a shell script to put in between the actions get specified server and connect to server. So in my my script, I would put this logic. If the server is not mounted, mount the share. If the server is already mounted, do nothing. 
That's a pretty simple set of instructions. And guess what? It didn't work. Turns out that you simply have to give the second action, connect to server, a valid server address. Since no matter what, that last action, connect to server, will be executed. If you don't pass it an address to which it connect, can connect, it's going to throw an error. At this point, I felt like I was chasing my own tail. For weeks, I would try to get this to work from the shell script, but I'd get the darn GUI pop-up, so I'd switch back to using Automator, but I'd run into the already mounted server area error, and I kept thinking, if I could just write a better script, I could get out of this problem. At one point, I took a drastic step, and I checked the Hazel log files in the console app. Console is a place where madness thrives, really. I've looked at log files so many times, and not once did I ever learn a darn thing. But ever hopeful, I always go check those log files. But Paul Kim, developer of Hazel, actually writes out log files in a surprisingly human-friendly way. According to the Hazel logs, with my Automator script embedded inside Hazel, the connect-to-server action was very confused. Rather than being passed the server IP and share name, somehow it was getting passed the name of the file that Hazel had found that was older than two weeks. So I'm, I'm thinking that it's trying to get this SMB server, but instead it's getting the name of the Hazel file or the name of the file that Hazel found. Well, developer Paul Kim is super helpful and super smart. So I emailed him about this. He explained that Hazel always passes the file name from the conditional section to the action section. Since my first action is Automator, it is the lucky recipient of that file name. Paul went on to explain that Automator has an option on each action to simply ignore any input it receives. This was super important information to have, and nothing I was, going to I was trying to do was going to work if I hadn't known to implement this solution. But it didn't change the tail chasing I was doing between shell scripts and Automator to reach my very simple goal. I mean, this whole thing should have been like five lines. All right, before I go on, I want to tell you one funny little thing. When I was reading Paul's console logs, I wrote in our Programming by Stealth channel in Slack, proof I've descended into this shared madness called programming. I just successfully interpreted an application's log files. I am a developer. I was kind of thought that was kind of funny. Scott Wilsey beat me up, beat me on that though. He made me laugh out loud when he responded with, "Clearly, the app's developer forgot their lessons in log file obfuscation." <laughs> I thought that was great. Anyway, after chasing my tail for weeks, it was time for my rubber ducking session with Ed Tobias. I wanted to keep the conversation at a high level, so to avoid digging into syntax, I started a screen share and I simply typed out logic statements such as. If share is not mounted, then mount share, else do nothing. You know, words like that. Just, just, I wanted to do it graphically, but for some reason it wouldn't connect to my iPad. It was a big mess. But anyway, I didn't put any real coding up on the screen. So once he had the big picture of what I was trying to do, I demonstrated the two problems. The shell script causing the GUI pop-up and the automator script falling over in a heap if the server was already mounted. As we noodled the various issues with the solutions I had tried, it suddenly hit me. There was a solution. If Automator can mount the server share as long as it's unmounted, maybe the first step in my script should be to unmount the share. When I told Ed my idea, I could not stop laughing at how, my, how stupid my solution was, and yet it's also brilliant. If it can't mount it if it's already mounted, then just unmount it and then mount it again. When Ed and I were finished reworking the solution, the entire function of the script was to find out if the share was mounted, and if so, unmount it, then pass along the SMB connection information to the automator action to mount the share. We tested Hazel with my now very simple automator combination shell script under three scenarios. 
when I was on my guest network, as expected, it did nothing, and I got no notifications from Hazel. On my real network, when the share was not mounted, it mounted the share and moved the old file as expected. On my real network, if the server share was mounted, the share briefly disappeared, reappeared, and then the old file moved as expected. With one last giggle at the solution, we ended our screen share and I declared victory. Well, I had my first chance to real-world test whether Hazelwood fail silently went off my home network over the Father's Day weekend. We surprised Steve's dad by appearing on his doorstep for Father's Day. They live like four hours away. And we stayed in a hotel using the free Wi-Fi. My VPN from PIA kicked in as expected. And over the weekend, Hazel had no, compla- no complaints about not finding my server. I was so happy. But then, as I was writing these, this part of this article, I had a thought. Hazel's job is to run silently in the background, keeping an eye on your folders and taking action according to the rules you set it for it. What if I'm at home working on a spreadsheet that's on my Synology and Hazel finds a file that she wants to move? She's going to unmount the share and remount it just as instructed. That would cause an interrupt and probably corrupt my file. Sadly, I had to abandon my brilliant solution of unmounting and remounting my share before doing any file moves with Hazel. Earlier, while I was searching for a solution to this conundrum, I found a freemium app in the Mac App Store called Automounter. I mispronounced that a little bit. Automounter. I do think I have a solution. I'm going to keep the rule that tells Hazel if I'm not on my network, then don't do anything. But I'm not even going to try to mount or unmount the shares. Instead, I'll run the $10 Automounter app from Pixelize. And uh, this is a New Zealand company, by the way, so they must be good because that's where Alistair's from. Anyway, Automounter's entire reason for being is to keep the server shares mounted. If one disconnects for some reason, it just brings it right back. Now, I hadn't embraced Automounter as my solution originally because the idea of having all these server shares from my Drobo and my Synology mounted all the time, cluttering up my desktop, that made me crazy. I don't want them mounted. I want them to briefly mount them, do the job, and have them go away. But I gave Automounter a try anyway because I'd run out of solution ideas and it has a very slick feature. It can hide mounted shares so you don't have to look at them on your desktop. They still show in the Finder sidebar, so there's no problem accessing them, but they're not in your way. I can choose to not worry my pretty little head about the fact that they're mounted, and yet they'll already be mounted when I needed them. I configured Automounter to mount my server shares, and it worked just as promised. Now, I paid the $10 for the Pro settings, which allow you to define custom mount points, such as slash volumes, and you can also have applications or files launch when the share is mounted. Now, the question was, how would it react when I went on travel? Would it start yelling at me, giving me notifications that it couldn't find the servers, just like Hazel? Nope. I checked Automounter from the hotel Wi-Fi, and, the, and in the listing of the shares I'd instructed it to keep mounted, it simply said, SMB's not available, and it also says, Rules not met at the top. So apparently, if it can't find it, it just doesn't try to mount it. While it still bothered me that I couldn't crack the code, literally on this whole programming problem, I discovered Automounter and it essentially solved the problems so my Hazel rules will function and not nag me when I'm away from my home network. But then I got an email from Ed saying, he's got another idea for a script. Well, I'm starting to feel like This is the song that never ends. Well, I've 
started a series of tiny Mac tips for Jill of the Northwoods, who just recently switched from Windows to the Mac. It's easy to use a Mac, but there's a lot of little tips and tricks that will make you more productive and enjoy it even more. This is part two of this series, and I've put a link in the show notes to part one of the Tiny Mac tips if you need to go back and pick those up. Now, I doubt that any of these tips will be truly life-changing. Well, one of them is magical, so maybe. And if you've been using a Mac for a long time, you may even know a lot of them. But when you learn them all, you may feel that you can use your Mac like a boss. Well, the first tip is to try holding down the option key when you click on things. You'll often see menus change and new capabilities will be revealed. Here's just a couple of examples of where the option key reveals hidden options. (laughs) See? See what I did there? All right. So let's just go through a couple of these little examples. This is by no means an exhaustive list, but just a few that came to the top of my head. If you click on the Bluetooth icon in your menu bar, you get a list of the available Bluetooth devices. But maybe you want to know whether your AirPods have updated themselves to the latest firmware you just heard about. Hold down the Option key when you click the Bluetooth icon, and you'll be able to see the firmware version and MAC address of every one of the available Bluetooth items. If you ever want to know anything about your Mac, from hardware to software, you have access to that information in just two clicks. If you select the Apple logo at the top left of the menu bar, the first item is called About This Mac. Now, this window by itself is pretty useful. It tells you the make and model of your, wait, make. Yeah, the make and model of your Mac, its serial number, and its configuration, like how much disk and how much RAM. But if you want to dig deep, on the Overview tab, select System Report. From this report, you can find out things like exactly which SSD is installed, everything about those Bluetooth accessories. You can see the Thunderbolt USB 4 device tree of what's connected, detailed network information, and more. When the Mac converted to requiring apps to be 64-bit, System Report was one of the places you could go to sort your apps by whether they were 32 or 64-bit and figure out which ones you needed to replace. It's a really interesting place to poke around and to learn about your system. So that by itself is kind of a fun Mac tip, but you can get to the system report even more quickly with our friend the Option key. Before clicking the Apple logo in the menu bar, hold down Option and then click the Apple logo. The first choice in the list will change from About This Mac to System Information. So you see what I mean? That these just sort of change things that are out there that you've seen before. Holding down the Option key just changes them. Now, Macs are pretty good at detecting attached external displays, but once in a while, you need to tickle things to get your Mac to recognize a display. Open Displays and System Preferences. In the bottom right, you'll see a button that says Night Shift. Don't click it. Hold down the Option key, and the Night Shift button turns into Detect Displays. This is just an obscure one. I just ran across this one today. All right, you know you can drag a file to move it from one folder to another, right? Did you know that if you hold down the Option key, when you click and drag, it will copy the file to the new location instead of moving the file? When you Option click drag, you'll see a green circle with a plus sign on it while you're dragging, and that indicates that it's going to copy instead of move the file. Now here's a sub-trick to quickly duplicate a file. Hold down the Option key, drag the file to any other location, but don't let go of it. Just drop it back in the original location, and it duplicates the file. All right, I know, you could use Command-D. It's a much easier way to duplicate a file, but I discovered this tip accidentally when I was testing the option-drag-copy method, so I thought I'd let you know you could do it that way too. Finally, with the option key, Apple seems to spend a lot of energy hiding things from us. For example, they don't want you to worry your pretty little head about seeing your library folder. 
Now, I suppose that for most people, that isn't the worst thing, but if you want to be a power user, you're going to want to know where your library folder is, and you probably want to be able to access it quickly and easily. In the Finder, if you click on the Go menu in the menu bar, you'll see a list of locations, things like Recents, Documents, and Downloads, but you will not see Library in the Download. Let go of that menu. This time, Option-click the Go menu, and now Library will be visible in the list. So the main lesson here in this section is to hold down the option key while clicking menus, and you'll often be surprised of hidden capabilities that you may find very useful to you. All right, our next tip is going to be about the sidebar. When you first start up a new Mac, the Finder has a list of folders in the left sidebar. Among others, you'll, things like, you'll see things like your user account, desktop, documents, downloads, and recents. Recents is a smart folder of your most recently opened items. It turns out you can add and remove any folder to the sidebar for quick access. Navigate to the folder you need to get to often, then click and drag it into the sidebar. As you move it up and down in the list, you'll see a little black line showing you where it will land if you let go. If it drops into the wrong place, don't worry about it. Just click and drag it to where you wanted it to go. I use this feature of macOS all the time, adding and removing folders as I need them. For example, if I'm working on planning a trip, I make a folder for all of the documents for the trip, and then I keep that folder in my Finder sidebar for easy access. Under normal circumstances, they're usually on my Google Drive and they're buried really, really low into Google Drive, but having it on the Finder sidebar, I can get to it immediately. An important thing about using this Finder sidebar is remember that with the Mac, the Save As dialog box shows the same left-hand sidebar. When I save a confirmation from an email or I print a a ticket to PDF, my newly added trip folder is right there in the sidebar, so I don't have to navigate deep into those folders to find the folder in which I want to save them. When the trip is over, I only need to drag it out of the sidebar to remove it. The folder is safe and sound in its original location, it's just no longer in the sidebar. Now remember that tip about using the option key when selecting Go to reveal the library folder? If you find you need the library folder pretty often like I do, you can drag it into the left sidebar of your Finder window just like any other folder. Well, you may notice that an app you've installed launches itself at login, but you don't remember telling it it was allowed to do that. While some apps are quite polite and they ask your permission, and maybe they even have a toggle box within their own preferences to control whether they launch at login, some apps are less respectful. The macOS level control for login items is a tad bit buried. Open System Preferences, Users and Groups, and then click on your account name in the left panel. Near the top of that pane, you'll see that your account opened to the Password tab, but there's a separate tab for login items. On this tab, you'll see a list of all the applications that have decided to automatically launch upon login. Some may have asked for permission, and some definitely do need to be launched at login, but once in a while, an odd one slips in. In the screenshot I put in the show notes, I could see that the VPN app called iVPN had added itself to login items when I was testing it, and that makes complete sense. But it's got a yellow alert because I've actually uninstalled that app. To control this list of login items, click on the lock and enter your login password, and then click the minus button down below to the the list to remove an item, or click the plus button to add a new application to the list. In some cases, you really want an app to launch at login, but you don't actually need to see the app. There's a little checkbox column to hide selected applications. I do that with Text Expander. I can't live without Text Expander running, but I don't need to see it open in order to use it. 
All right, let's talk a little bit about focus mode. I'm not a huge fan of the new focus modes for Apple devices, but it's probably because I really like notifications. Remember my post about that? I'm kind of in the all or nothing camp. When I'm recording a podcast, I want nothing disturbing me. But the rest of the time, I want all the notifications. I really do miss the old do not disturb toggle, but I can live with clicking three times to tell my devices to leave me alone indefinitely. Now, as a Mac, iPhone, iPad, Apple Watch user, I love that all of my devices are interconnected through my iCloud account. That advantage is quite helpful when setting a focus mode. If you have an Apple Watch, swipe up and tap the little moon and choose your focus mode. When you do that, all of the devices logged into the same iCloud account automatically go into that same focus mode. Your Mac, your iPhone, and your iPad will all follow along. Likewise, on your Mac, if you tap on Control Center in the menu bar, that's those two little toggle switches that are kind of going in opposite directions. If you choose a focus mode from there, your Apple Watch and iPad and iPhone will all go into that same focus mode. I love that I can just grab whatever device is closest to me and easiest to change and all of my other devices switch right along with them. And of course, you can turn off focus modes on any device and they all follow suit. All right, let's talk about another thing that's also cool about having interconnected devices. Continuity is the name Apple uses to describe this concept of allowing all devices in one Apple ID to be able to work together. I put a link in the show notes to the Apple uh, article on continuity because there's a lot in there. Continuity does have a lot of features that hog all the publicity, such as Sidecar to use an iPad on the second screen for your Mac and Universal Control, which allows you to drag your cursor from your Mac to your iPad and use the Mac's keyboard on the iPad. Now, those features are sexy and super useful. But while those splashy features get all the glamour, the feature of continuity I use the most that you might not know about it is copy and paste between devices. It's a real pain to type on the small keyboard of an iPhone, at least for everybody over 30, but with continuity, you can type long-form text on your Mac or iPad with a proper physical keyboard, copy it, and then simply tap on any text field on the iPhone and select paste. It is magical. That's the one I thought, maybe that is life-changing. I love that. And I notice if my Mac has suddenly maybe gotten onto the wrong out of my guest network, it's like, why isn't paste working? I can't live without it. So I really do depend on that one. Now, as my friend Dean says, deciding to justify the cost of your first Mac is very difficult, but justifying the cost of the second one is quite easy. Before you know it, they'll be littered about your house. You'll have bought them for your spouse, your children, and maybe an extra one for yourself. From time to time, it would be handy to be at a different Mac, but maybe you're too lazy to walk all the way upstairs to fix something, maybe on your kid's Mac. With Mac OS, you can screen share into other Macs on your network right from inside the Finder. You don't need to install any software. Before you have the need to screen share, on every Mac you might want to connect into, open System Preferences to the Share Preference pane and click on the On box, on the On checkbox, for screen sharing. From there, you can allow access to specific users or all users. So you have to do that ahead of time on all of those Macs that you might want to connect into. But once that's enabled, on your Mac, simply open a Finder window, scroll down to the left sidebar to where it says Network. If the other Mac is available on the network, you should see it listed there. Once it's selected, you'll see two buttons, Connect As, which allows you to into the file system of that other Mac, and Share Screen, which does just what it says on the tin. 
By the way, to do that file system uh, back in system preferences, you do need to check the on box for file sharing. All right, when you, this is a really quick one. This is a short one, and I love it. When looking at long-form content in many apps, including browsers and preview with PV, PDFs, I should say, the command down arrow will jump you immediately to the bottom of the page. Even more useful, let's say you've scrolled down a bit on a page and you want to get to the top. Simply use command up arrow to jump to the top of the page. If you'd like to scroll down and up just one page at a time, try option down and up arrow. All right, Finder is designed to help you find things, but sometimes that isn't as easy as it sounds. Scrolling through a long list of items in alphabetical order can take a long time. And we learned last time you can type a character to the first letter or the first two letters of a, of a file name and your list will jump down there. But what if you know other things about your file? Like, you know, it's really big or, you know, you modified it just recently. Depending on the finder view you've chosen, you could use the column headings to sort the files, but some of the views don't even have that. To the right of the name of the folder you're viewing in the finder is a strange looking icon. It's a horizontal line, three little boxes below that, another horizontal line, and another three boxes. You may see the word group underneath it. That little icon is designed to let you see the folder items in groups with little lines separating them. You can choose to group items in a finder window by name, kind, application, size, tags, or four different date criteria, last opened, added, modified, or created. I keep my downloads folder with group set to date added so that when I download a file, it is always right at the top of the list view. You can use group on your applications folder in the finder as well, but the options are a little more limited. You can group by name, application category, date last opened, date added, size, or tagged. Tags, I should say. All right, this is our last tiny tip. In the past few years, Apple's been on a path to protect us more and more from the evil that lies on the internet. Now, I wholeheartedly approve of these measures, and I also know that sometimes it makes good sense to go around these protections. In the old days, you could just download any old installer from any old website, or even clicking it a download from an email. You can install it on your Mac without any challenges. If you were super knowledgeable and knew how to avoid dangerous sites and installers, this wasn't a problem. Unfortunately, the vast majority of users were at significant risk. In order to protect us from our own trusting behavior, Apple created a system preference pane and called it Security and Privacy. On the General tab, you have two radio buttons that uh, have options to allow apps downloaded from the App Store only or App Store and identified developers. The App Store only option is great for people who are unlikely to need anything else, but for more sophisticated users, you might want the freedom to download from outside the App Store. An identified developer is one who has notarized their app, which means that any problems with it can be traced back to them. It's not a foolproof method, but malware developers are unlikely to want to notarize their apps. Apps from identified developers aren't vetted in any way, like the App Store apps are, but they can still be really good apps. All of this is great, and I'm glad these protections are in place. It doesn't come often, up often, but sometimes you know an app is legit, but it's not from a signed developer. Let me give you an example. We were just talking about Automator that lets you use drag-and-drop drag and actions along with text-based script and then save those workflows as an application. We just talked about how Lewis Butler was helping me, and he sent me an app he created in Automator as an example of how I could solve the problem. When I downloaded the app and tried to run it, I was denied. This makes sense. 
because Lewis didn't go through the notarization product process for just this little demo app. Sometimes the security and privacy preference pane will have a button letting you open that unsigned app, but there's a much easier, more dependable way to open an unsigned app. I could open Lewis's app in Automator, by the way, so I could see what it does and verify it's not doing anything nefarious, so I know that this is a good app, but Apple's not going to let me launch that app by double-clicking it. Here's the tiny tip. If you get into this situation and you really, truly know that the app you're trying to launch is safe, it's super easy. Simply hold down the control key and click the app once to bring up the contextual menu. The top choice will be open. This action will bring up a window telling you again, it shouldn't be open because Apple cannot check it for malicious software. But on that same screen, there's an open button. Click it and your app will open and the Mac will remember that you've given it permission to launch from now on. Now that you understand why Apple instituted this change, you can judiciously use this new trick on apps you are truly certain are okay. I hope you've learned at least one new trick from part two of my tiny Mac tips. And remember, a lot of this depends on what system preferences look like, looks like. When you get to macOS Ventura, the next version of macOS, it's going to be called the settings app. And I'm betting that all of my screenshots will need to be redone. Anyway, I hope you learned something. I had fun putting it together. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchatz. I'm uh, in a different location on a different mic, on a different camera, on a different lighting system with a different display. How are you doing today, Bart? I'm good. I think I'm the same me. <laughs> well, good. The security is, uh, what did you say in your chat to me, that uh, it definitely is the silly season? It really is, because I, yeah, I sat down after lunch, I'll do the show notes now, and then my cup of coffee still had coffee in it, and I was done. Wow. I was like, this is normally a two cup of coffee job. How can this be done? <laughs> there we go. So, anyway. Well, that's good news. That means not, the, the world is not on fire on this topic. That is true. <laughs> or else the people telling us the world is on fire have gone on holidays, and it actually is on fire, but we don't know, in which case, ooh, okay. <laughs> um. First off, some follow-ups. Um, we have some more news on the NSO group uh, Pegasus Spyware. There is a report ongoing, an investigation, apologies, ongoing within the European Union. And they have released an interim report where they say that, um, the NSO group now say that five EU countries were customers of the NSO group and bought Pegasus to use against people inappropriately. And the interesting thing is that the NSO group say this happened and they're not sure if this is the full list. They're still investigating. Oh, my gosh. So, so perhaps yeah. Pegasus could or NSO could publish who they didn't sell it to. Would that be a shorter list? <laughs> you know, it just might be Bart and Allison. That's it. <laughs> All right. Well, Bart, I've been meaning to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> You thought your phone was acting a bit funny. Um, in related news, Google's Project Zero have documented uh, another piece of spyware being sold, this time by an Italian company called RCS Labs. It's nowhere near as sophisticated and advanced as Pegasus was. But what was interesting is that one of their tactics was that they used an enterprise certificate to sideload on the iPhone. Um, so basically, this is the program that... 
So plus obviously some social engineering. So this is what allows a corporation to have a private app for use within the corporation. Okay. So you so had to have accepted s- that, right? Yes. Correct. So it's social engineering plus the certificate. Okay. You can't just yeah. accidentally get that. You have to take some action to say, yes, I will install the, install this. Uh, is it a profile maybe? It's going to come in as a profile, so you have the cert, yeah. Okay. Without the profile, the app won't work, yeah. So it's not a flaw, um, it's as designed. It's as designed. It is an abuse of the program right. to sign up for a cert and then use it to spread spyware. So Apple have revoked the cert, so the, the threat is entirely in the past. Good. Uh, but it's just another interesting thing to bear in mind, that if, if, if you're someone important and your phone says, confirm you would like to do this, well... Don't, probably, or at least be very careful. Right. Think about, did you just install a VPN and it's saying, can I install this uh, profile? That's when you say yes. When nothing's happening, you don't say yes. Now, there was a bit of chicanery going on here because in some countries, I don't believe this was in Europe now, I believe this was in other parts of the world, they... The users of this of this spyware collaborated, is the best word I can use, with local ISPs so that the name of the profile was name of my ISP dot settings dot, yeah. Oh, that's ugly. That's ugly. So, I mean, it isn't entirely as straightforward as just don't say yes, because there were, like these people did a lot of abuse of legitimate systems for illegitimate uses. Yeah. Yeah, but anyway, it's, you know, it's not the same scale as NSO Group, but I figured it was the, the sensible place to hang it in the show notes. Right. Um, and then our other regular story is that social media continues to, continues to slightly improve. Uh, in this case, it's all improvement. Uh, so Instagram are rolling out new parental controls, including time limits, so parents can limit the time of the day and the total time that their kids use Instagram, which seems like a good thing. Right now, today, it's available in the US. By the end of the month, it'll be in about five or six countries, including the UK and Ireland. And by the end of the year, it will be everywhere. Nice. So they are nice. Rolling. Yeah, it's a nice feature. And from the department of Follow the Money, um, Telegram are opening up a revenue stream that isn't creepy uh, by allowing you to pay for a premium version of Telegram, which gives you up to four gigabytes of file upload. Hmm. And very fast file downloads, and basically all of the limits on things get doubled. So you can only have so many private channels. Well, you can have twice as many if you pay for it. You can only have so many people in the one chat, where you can have twice as many. I think it's like 250 times two, so 500 people in the chat, if you like. Um, and it comes in at a little under $5 a month, so four ninety nine, of course. I wish there was something in there that I really wanted, because then I would pay for it to help keep them in business and you know support the team. Um, but well, you need a bigger family, Alison. You need another <laughs> 200 and something. <laughs> yeah, I don't do any of the groups. Uh, by the way, Lindsay got added to a giant group that was created spon- by somebody bad and sent spam. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Charming. I don't know how that happened. Well, cell phone number connects to Telegram, doesn't it? So yeah. if they just randomly choose cell phone numbers, they're going to miss a lot of the time, but... Yeah, not all the time. Yeah, maybe. Okay, uh, that's it. That's it in terms of feedback and follow up. Uh, jumping us on to action alerts. It has been Patch Tuesday. Um, there has been an important update from Microsoft. We have two zero days that have been fixed. One of them in Office. One of them in Windows. Uh, and I'm doing a little happy dance because IE is dead. D E D dead. Every version <laughs> of it. IE eleven. They're all. 
Dead. Dead, dead, dead. Uh, let me dead, guess. Dead, dead. Unless you're a corporation paying to keep it alive? No. No. Dead. Actually, genuinely, <laughs> really totally, dead. finally dead. <laughs> I work in such a corporation, and I'm happy to say, no, it uh, is dead. So I, I, in particular, enjoy the death of IE because uh, during the days where Apple was on its last legs and dying uh, and about to, to go out of business, and even before that, it was really hard to use a Mac because so many sites were uh, set to mm. only work with IE. And there was a version of IE for the Mac for a while, and then they discontinued it. it yeah, it was Bart's making a face at me that you couldn't see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it was from the era when Microsoft had separate apps for the Mac and Windows that weren't compatible with each other. So you had versions of Word for the Mac that saved in a different file format than versions mm -hmm. of Word for for the PC, and you had to translate between the two. And in that era, with that mindset, the version of IE sucked. On yeah, the Mac. I actually on on the the Office thing, I remember I actually started using Open Office because it was more compatible with the Windows version of Office <laughs> yeah. than the Microsoft version of Office. It so was, yeah. And like, also the interface was more human-friendly because the Mac version of Office had a very strange interface with floating palettes. It was like someone took Photoshop and made it, you know, crossed it with Word to give you this Franken-word. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a fan of anything but uh, Excel anyway, so if you could find a way to make it even worse, that was great. So yay, the, uh, yeah. the Wicked Witch is dead. Indeed. And also, it didn't get a mention in the actual text of Microsoft's announcement, but it has been confirmed that the Folina vulnerability we talked about last time has been patched. So that issue with the funny URL schemes has been addressed by oh, Microsoft. Oh, good, good. Okay. Exactly. Uh, nothing came up in worthy warning, so we can jump straight to notable news. Wait, that's um, good news. Yay! It is good news, yeah. <laughs> so if you teleport yourself doo -doo -doo -doo, back to last summer, we talked about a cool new feature that was going to be coming to Firefox, but they were going to be rolling it out first in the preview versions and then as an opt-in feature. And then a year later, it would become a default on feature. Well, we are a year later. So as of the last version of Firefox, total cookie protection is on by default for everyone. Can you remind us what it was? Yes. So... This is a very clever way of dealing with third-party cookies. So third-party cookies are cookies from the website you didn't type into the address bar, right? So you have gone to myfavoriteblog.com and they have a little Facebook like button, which means that they have invited Facebook into their website as a third party and you now have been tracked by Facebook because of the third-party cookie from that little Facebook badge. Right, even if you're not they logged into Facebook, even if you don't have a Facebook account. Yes, because they actually keep fake accounts on everyone. Yeah, I and remember I, I had those like buttons for a few minutes and then you told me what they were and I was like, oh my gosh, got rid of those. Yeah. And that's why Facebook were so big on selling them, right? That's why Facebook wanted everyone to have those buttons everywhere because it was so in their interest. And they can also be hidden one by one pixels for ad trackers. They're mm. often invisible pixels, which is even more nefarious. Anyway... These third-party cookies are what allow tracking from site to site. So you visit myfavoriteblog.com and you get Facebook's tracking cookie. And then you visit myotherfavoriteblog.com and they also have a Facebook button. And now you get that cookie again. So it gets connected. Ah, this same person has been on these two websites. That relies on there being one copy of the third-party cookie. Okay. So up until this point, the approach has been to block the setting of the cookie which everyone is trying to work around and detect that you haven't set the cookie and all sorts of chicanery, Firefox threw that entire approach out. 
and they just rethought it. What if for every website you type into the address bar, we have a separate cookie jar? We will set any cookie you like on myfirstblog.ie. It doesn't matter who it came from, we just store the cookies. Uh-huh. And you go to mysecondblog.ie, and it's a whole new cookie jar. And we'll accept all the third-party cookies, which means that as far as Facebook is concerned, two different people visited these two websites. Oh, you know what I like about that? Facebook is paying someone to have those those cookie collectors on their sites, and they're getting zero for it. That's even yes. better. That's, that's yeah. the best it's of such, all worlds. Like, don't fight the system. Don't waste your time trying to figure out, is this a good cookie or a bad cookie? <laughs> just put them in separate buckets. Island them away from each other, and then there is no cross-site anything. They're just separate co- separate cookie jars. Problem solved. It's such a cool, such a simple solution. So total cookie protection, and we now all get it for free. So now, so, why aren't the other browsers stealing this idea? There is a teeny tiny catch. You've now switched from an allow listing to a, sorry, from a deny listing to a now allow listing approach. So a legitimate use of third-party cookies is single sign-on of various sorts, but there are very few legitimate single sign-on providers. So Firefox approach now is, with the exception of these known providers, okay. we keep the cookies islanded, but we make... The reason it was in beta for a year, basically, was to get that to figure out which legitimate third-party cookies need to be allow listed. Okay. So that you don't have the strange thing of, oh, I'm logged out all of a sudden, how did that happen? And that's not all that common. So really, they, were, they had some edge cases that they wanted to be confident were cleaned up. And they had a year to gather the data. And so now they're confident that they have it all, all their ducks in a row. And since it's an open source project, hypothetically, anyone could steal their list. Yeah, let's let's do it. Come on, Safari, yeah, Chrome, Edge, let's go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. They should. And th- I mean, you know, Firefox is a big enough browser with enough of a user base that you can now point to this and say, look, the internet didn't break. Yeah, you know. right, 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 right. Okay, let's put so, a pin yeah. in that and remind me that I that I asked them to do that when they do. Yeah, let's hope so. I okay. hope that, that would be wonderful to say, Alison, you asked and they delivered. I, <laughs> I hope you'll say those words to you someday. Um, just slightly because I was looking for filler for content, because normally <laughs> my approach in this segment is I don't tell you about stuff that's coming in the future too much because, well, when it comes, I'll tell you about it. Because otherwise you'll just forget anyway. Right. But there wasn't very much content. And there were actually a couple of announcements from the WWDC conference, not the keynote. So remember, the keynote is on day one. And it's sort of like the kickoff event. And they get all the really, really shiny stuff the media will like into the keynote. But after that, there's a whole rest of the conference for the nerdy stuff. And a lot of the nerdy stuff is very developer focused and there's no interest to our listeners. But in this case, the rest of the conference included some security and privacy features that just weren't shiny enough to put into the keynote. Hmm. So I figured, what the hey, let's talk about them now uh, and know that they are coming. So the first is a very interesting idea. And this is, I like this because it's Apple joining a standard again, but they're just first to the table. So I didn't know it existed, but the Internet Engineering Task Force, the IETF, are working with browser makers and others to develop a proper replacement for CAPTCHAs. Oh, please. Yes. I don't know which one is the stoplight, okay? I can't see all the boats. Those, I don't, I thought that was a bridge. (laughs) Is that a bicycle or a motorbike? Well, you think it's a bicycle, but I'm pretty sure it's a motorbike. (laughs) Yeah, anyway. So this is a privacy-respecting way of having the maker of the OS verify that it really is a human using the browser. 
Okay. Which means that any website that wishes to get rid of their captures can use this protocol. And basically it's an it's an it's an A or B. So the website can actually have a fallback to capture for browsers that don't support this protocol. So what that means is that anyone who's using this type of validation will get, you know, if you're on iOS or the Mac, when the new versions come out, you'll just not see a captcha. It'll just be completely hidden from you. And if you're on another browser, you'll get a captcha. But the website doesn't have to choose between this type of security or no security. The so, website can have can have it both ways. So wait a minute, but how do they know I'm a human? Aha. So if you if the browser supports the protocol, the, and, and if the website has opted into the protocol, the website will send the browser <laughs> a cryptographic challenge, which will have to be solved by an by an a, an authentic, a trusted authentication provider. In other words, Apple or Microsoft or Google, depending on whether you're Windows, Mac or whatever. That will cryptographically verify that, yeah, you are you and hand you a token that you will give back to the website. And that token proves that you are a real human being vouched for by Apple. By token, you mean I'm going to type in a six-digit code? No, no, no. All of the, this is a browser to website. So, how, so all you're going to see... How did it know I was a human, though? Because Apple have vouched for the fact that you're a human because you are using their operating system. You are typing, you are doing things. They know... They're on iOS knows that you are there right now typing on things. Okay. It okay. Knows you're so, not a bot. Okay. Because so you're sitting there. The things that you are doing on that device are telling Apple that you are human. Yeah, literally. Like wiggling the mouse or whatever. The okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if anything knows that you're, <coughs> that, you're that you're not on a bot, it's the actual computer you're on. Okay. I like, thought you were just you were saying bot, Apple Apple was talking directly to the website and it was never looking at my system to see that I was actually there. But now I get it. No, no, no. So I was saying the browser is where this protocol happens, right? It's browser to website. And okay. then the browser has to reach back to Apple to get cryptographic signatures to prove the token. Okay. And then the token gets handed back to the website who can cryptographically verify, oh yeah, Apple did vouch for this person or but, Google did vouch. or. Whoever. But websites have to know to turn this on. Correct. So it's it, so it's a standard protocol by the IETF, which means it, it's not an Apple thing. It's an Internet Engineering <coughs> Task Force thing. So it is finally a standard protocol that everyone can choose to implement to replace this hodgepodge of 20 million different capture providers out there. Okay. And the incentive is quite strong for websites to solve this problem. Like the capture is not there because websites love the capture. <laughs> the capture is there out of desperation. Okay. Okay. You know, so the, the only one I don't one. mind is the one with the little puzzle that you drag across. Yeah, it gets old. Oh, well, don't you do math. It gets no. You just drag the puzzle piece. I mean, it's it's like a like a jigsaw. I've managed puzzle. to miss those. <laughs> well, and I suppose if you had uh, dexterity trouble, that would also be a problem, right? Accessibility is definitely an issue. Yeah. So th there's actually a link in the show notes to the WWDC session. It's not a long session, and the cool stuff happens quite early on. So they show you side by side of two iPhones. One iOS 15 doesn't support the protocol, and one iOS 15 that does going to a website that supports the protocol. And on the iOS 15 phone, the captcha pops up, and it's a standard captcha. And on the other iPhone, you just go clean through. Nice, nice, cool. So it's, and they explain the protocol and everything. It's cryptographically sound, privacy respecting. It's just great. So, okay. Yeah. So I'm going to say it the other way. Okay. Now everybody steal from Apple, please. <laughs> Make this go. But they don't even have to because it's the IETF. They just have okay. to implement the protocol right. that's being finished. So okay. great. No yeah. stealing. Just, just do it. Yeah. So yeah, I love it. Um, now, this is Apple Creativity Next. So the next cool feature is in macOS Ventura. 
So the first time you plug a USB device or a Thunderbolt device into your computer, the computer actually knows it hasn't seen the device before. And at the moment, it does nothing. Well, in Ventura, it's going to pop up a little thing saying, should I give this device anything apart from electricity? So hmm. am I going to allow this device to read data, to access any other API apart from have some electricity? And so you basically say, yep, I, this device is allowed to have data. And then from that moment forevermore, that device will work fine. Why do I want that? Okay, so remember all of these attacks where you have a malicious USB cable that all you have to do is have an airport thing where you just have a cable and when people plug in, it steals all their data? Yeah. Completely destroyed. Doesn't work anymore with Ventura. So for the one in a billion chance I was ever going to get caught by that, every single time I plug in a new device, I have to say allow, 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 allow. Well, allow once. Allow once, yeah. I guess. Okay. I don't think it happens a lot, and I'm pretty sure there's a toggle in settings to say, oh, fine, throw me to the wolves. <laughs> yeah, okay. I would, yeah. I would like to... I mean, how often do you plug in genuinely new devices you've never used before? True, true. When I get them. I guess if it's only yeah. once, I can live with it. But I, I'm just going to take in a little interlude here because we have time and do yet another rant about the fact that Apple took uh -oh. away one of my USB-C ports... And replaced it with a stupid, idiotic HDMI port. And I will tell you why I am so angry about that right now. I'm at Lindsay's house, and I spent so much time trying to figure out how to run my light, my microphone, Ethernet, uh, let's see, yeah, my microphone interface and my external display, and I was short a USB-C port. I thought, okay, right. fine, I've got this external display, it does HDMI. All right, great, I'll plug it in, and I plug it in, and guess what HDMI can't carry? power which means oh. i need USB-C to carry power so now i've got a usb uh, an hdmi cable going from my mac to the external display and then a USB-C cable going from the usb on the display back to a power plug so i'm plugged in in two places well only because steve had another adapter it's like I didn't have this problem before. I was able to plug everything in. I should go get the the Mac, the three-year-old Mac I gave to Lindsay, two-year-old Mac I gave to Lindsay, because it had four USB-C ports. I would have rather had a dongle for HDMI for when I need it. Yep. Uh, you and I are 100% on the same page on this one. And the Give only reason this is ports. working at all is because I happen to bring my, my MagSafe connector is why I was able to at least get three in. <laughs> yeah, otherwise you would, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so, yes. Actually, no, I just made my own opposite point. If I had the old Mac, I wouldn't be able to use MagSafe. I'd, be, I'd have to be using a USB-C port. Oh, shut up, Allison. I'm still angry. But don't the <laughs> HDMI dongles also have a power in a lot of the time? Mm, maybe. So my HDMI dongle has lots of stuff in it, but yeah. I did buy a very generic dongle. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Okay, yeah, you're still right. Like, <laughs> give me generic ports, don't hard code in, especially not a big ugly port like HDMI. Give me the teeny tiny little USB-C port. Yeah, and you know what? On both ends, it plugged in. I tried to plug it in upside down over the way it wanted to go twice, both of them. Yeah, that, that law of the universe that other USB goes in wrong three times. Mm -hmm. It's like, doesn't fit, turn it over, doesn't fit. What? Turn it over, now it fits. How? On both ends. <laughs> yeah, on both. Yeah, so six times. Yeah, no, that happens to me all the time. I don't yeah. know why. It makes no sense. All right. Uh, what else is new? So, 
And then finally, Mail.app is getting... Oh, second from finally. Uh, penultimately, uh, Mail.app is getting support for another protocol that is a standard that I didn't know existed called the Brand Indicators for Message Identification, which is an extension of the DMARC Mail Validation Standard. So this allows the... So DMARC is a way to prove that you are the legitimate sender for a given domain. And DMARC is used by spam gateways. But there's no visual indication to the user that DMARC has passed. It's just used for <coughs> email and nip spam in the bud, which is great. Well, someone has a, not someone, there is a standard that extends DMARC to allow a brand to have an icon of their choosing automatically included by a mail client when they pass DMARC. Hmm. So basically, you get a little logo, not in the mail body, but in the chrome of the window. So it's in the control of your mail client that says this really is PayPal. This really is whoever. I've always been confused when we say Chrome of the of the window. I don't because Chrome is a browser. So what do you mean Chrome by Chrome is in a browser the... named after? So imagine an email. Mm-hmm. You have a window up looking at an email. Mm-hmm. Some bits of that window are written by the person who sent you the mail. Oh. And some bits of the window are written by your mail app. Okay. The bits by mail app are called the Chrome. The bit from someone else is called the content. Okay, so I'm looking at my mail. I've got an email from Barry Austern selected in the in a one column, and I can see it in the right column. Uh, but up above, I've got buttons like forward and reply and, and such. Yeah, so all of those buttons, all of the things put there by mail.app are the Chrome, okay. which is adorning the email from whoever you just said it was from. And that would, and so it would be in that part of the in window. In the Chrome. Okay. Yeah, so in the bit of the window that is beyond the control of the sender, that is managed for you by iOS slash macOS, whatever. Hmm. Okay, because right in now the there's nothing that- about the email up in the Chrome, but there will be in the future. No, no, the from address and the to address, that's all a part of the Chrome. Okay, so you're definitely talking about a different part of the window than I was then. So I was, I said up where there's like the reply button, the delete button, the change font size button. Okay, everything that's not the text of the subject and the body of the email is Chrome. Because literally the only things that came, the only things under the control of the person who sent you the email are the subject they typed in and the content they typed in. Everything And else who they are. No, they don't get to say that. Your, your mail browser is saying what the headers say they are. That's Chrome. So the fact that it says Barry Austin would say Okay, that's PayPal. a tiny bit of not Chrome in the Chrome, right? Because okay. his actual address is coming from the headers. Right. So I don't see anything that's not that. <laughs> so there must be something new coming that isn't there right now that I don't see. Well, yes. I mean, the, right now there is no indication of who, of, of DMARC passing, right? Okay. If I were to send you an, incru- if I were to send you a validly digitally signed mail, you would have a little blue shield in the Chrome that says this mail has been successfully digitally signed. Hmm. Well, I'll have to see it when I see it, because I don't know where that is, but I believe you. Okay, the point is, in a part of the window it is impossible for to be faked, there will be an indicator saying that this is cryptographically verifiably from a certain company. Okay. Which, the absence of that signal doesn't mean anything, but the presence does. So PayPal would set this up and then their email would have a PayPal logo in a bit of the window that they can't fake. Gotcha. Which means you could then very quickly say this really is a PayPal email. Okay. With cryptography to back it up, which is important, obviously. 
So that's really nice. So it's called Brand Indicator for Message Identification, and that is a standard, and that is coming in the mail app on the new versions of the Mac and iOS. So again, that's very nice. We get to say BIMI. B-I-M-I. Yeah, the, oh, the, the Wikipedia page has a phonetic guidance. I think it was <laughs> BIMI, though. Uh, anyway. Uh, and then the last thing we have is it's just a little... It's a small thing, but it's nice. If you like having your own domain for your email coming through iMessage, or sorry, coming through iCloud, you can now get the custom domain straight from the from the email from the settings app on iOS from Cloudflare. Hmm. So you can buy okay. the domain right there. So you're in the settings app where you would configure a domain and it would tell you to go set some DNS records and whatever. You can now just buy a domain right there. So that's not the same thing as email forwarding. No, so it's no, buying exactly. a domain like buying podfeet.com or Allison yes. at podfeet.com. No, no, podfeet.com. Okay, so it's not an email domain, it's a domain. Yes, you are buying the domain straight for in the email app so that you can have your own custom. whatever you want at your custom domain, all without having to leave the okay. settings app in iOS. Who does the so forwarding? You're buying from Cloudflare. There is no forwarding. You're just buying okay. a domain, and the MX record is pointing straight at iCloud. Only it's all oh, being done oh, for you. Oh, it's, so it's through iCloud then. Got you. You said that. I think if I didn't, I meant to. That was kind of the point. Yeah. So you know the way you can have custom domains on iCloud? This is a way to go straight from I have an idea to I have it working, all without leaving the settings app for iCloud. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, very cool. Very cool for regular human folk, you know, who don't own their own domains already. Like this is a great way to lower the barrier to entry. So and I think cool. you only get three through that, through iCloud, through Probably mail for most or people. iCloud Plus. Yeah. Probably not for most people. You know? uh, and then the last story is just bizarre, right? I did not think that I would be using the words Roe v. Wade in security bits because I shouldn't. What, what? What? How? But in response to this landmark ruling. A bunch of senators have decided to attack Google and Apple because of IDFA. Uh, what's IDFA again? So IDFA is the ID for advertisers, and this is just wrong-headed in every possible way. So given that we have time, I'm prepared, I'm gonna I'm gonna dig in a little deeper than I could have. Um, so in the early days of iOS, when people wanted to track you online, when an advertiser wanted to track you from app to app to app, they actually would read the serial number of your iPhone and literally give you an unrevocable tracking cookie, effectively, and follow you around. Yeah, that was the IMEI, I think it was, right? It was one of the deep, deep down hardware baked right. in identifiers, yeah. Yeah. And Apple's response was, oh, okay, we can't do this. We need to have an API that gives you another ID that the user gets a button to reset mm. whenever they want. And that was the ID for advertisers. And it started off that by default, the ID was there and the user could make iOS forget it on demand or make it only remembered for a week. And that was like a compromise. Like you can have some tracking. Well, that same ID is what is now protected by advanced tracking protection. Uh, and that's the so when you uh, out APP? A advanced advanced tracking AT. That's not working. <laughs> no, it's not ATP. The acronym isn't lining up. Yeah, advanced. Tra I thought it was a advanced lot of tracking protection. Yeah, me, me. 
Well, at least mm-hmm. it's good to know that every person is yelling it into their their device right they are. now. Everyone is. Yeah. If we could so just we hear it. Slack later. App Party. tracking transparency. App tracking tra- transparency. It's AT and T. ATT. Yeah, without the and. Yeah, so that feature also uses that's what is being protected by app tracking transparency is the IDFA. The IDFA isn't. And I, so the senator's letter makes it out that the IDFA was added to iOS to make tracking easier, whereas it added to iOS to make tracking harder. They have it completely backwards. Oh, this is no. the most wrong-headed, stupid thing I have seen in ages. And what's and it got to do with Roe v. Wade? Well, because the fear is that you can now force... So one of the really annoying things is that a very big revenue stream for apps for tracking your cycle is to sell the data to Facebook. And the fear is that mm. someone is going to subpoena the ad trackers oh. to capture that data because pregnant people buy a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Advertisers want to know you're pregnant. Right. Therefore, they pay big money to tracking apps that monitor cycles so they know to start advertising baby stuff. It's disgusting, it's horrible, and it is a real problem to be solved. But And IDFA solves a- it. Or helps to solve yes. it, right? Not exactly. hurts it. And they've got it backwards? They've got it backwards. So they're trying to solve the right problem in all the wrong ways. And I'm just hoping to goodness one of their staffers gets to them and goes, no, 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 you rush this out within 24 hours of a very controversial court ruling. Stop. Think. Have another go. <sighs> Try again, because the problem you're solving is very real. But this is not the answer. Jeez. Yeah, it made me cranky. Uh, Not just me. Gruber explained it better than I did. Um, so I linked that in the show notes because he was much more rational. Oh, yeah. Let like, me get a great great quote here from the senators. And I'm not going to call them out <clears throat> as much as I want to. But the quote is, Apple and Google knowingly facilitated these harmful practices by building advertising-specific tracking IDs into their mobile operating systems. Yeah, uh, backwards. 180 degrees. Uh, <laughs> Wrong, 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 wrong. So anyway, there we are. Okay, great. This is awesome. Yeah, it is. So now we need a palate cleanser. Oh, Lord, uh, do we? Oh, wait, 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 wait. No, sorry. Yeah, sorry. I thought you were going to put this in the show notes as a palate cleanser. We get to go, we have a palate pre-cleanser because this is quite cleansing, I think. Right, but so, we also have something from Alistair that I thought we were going to talk about, but you didn't tell me oh, to okay, put it in the sorry, show notes. You didn't tell me to put it in the show notes. You said you were going to read it outside and you did and you responded. So we'll talk about that. Can we do that before the excellent explainer? Yeah, go for it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So uh, Alistair Jenks wrote something into uh, into Slack, and he it, this is not a fully formed idea, but I think it's a, an interesting thing that we to roll around in our own heads and keep seeing clearly. So I'm just going to yes. read his letter here, or what he wrote here. I've been spinning an idea around in my head regarding passkeys. I've not got it straight yet, but I figure it's worth putting it out there. While there is no shared secret... And the only secret is well kept on the account holder's devices. Could the public key be used in nefarious ways by someone with sufficient access to the account vendor's system? If a bad actor has sufficient access, they could exfiltrate a user account database. Does that not also mean that they may have sufficient access to alter that database? Specifically, can the bad actor swap my public key with theirs or even just copy mine? Well, it's a public key, so that's definitely true. 
It seems that there would need to be more work done to actually benefit from such a move, which is where my mental model is still spinning. It may be that such an attack needs a lot more engineering to be done inside the target organization, but then if we're moving to a world where credentials are not easily stolen, won't the bad actors be looking for new ways to get their ill-gotten gains? More simply, they could create havoc by simply corrupting the public keys. That doesn't give any direct benefit, but neither, neither does a denial-of-service attack, which this definitely would be. So he's partly so, in there. So what, what does this mean? Okay, so I just say, take a step back. The attackers have broken in. They now have access to the user database. Game over. You are hacked on that site. That's it. It doesn't matter whether you used 20-factor authentication. Your account on that site is now hacked. Okay. The only thing they have is a public key that's site-specific. So they have totally and completely hacked you on that site, whether you're using passwords, passkeys, 2FA... Fort Knox authentication, where you had to, like, you know, do some sort of retina scan. Doesn't matter. They have... It's like they've taken the door off, and you're worried about the lock. (laughs) Well, they've taken the door off. Okay. Okay. So, it isn't magic. Passkeys are not magic. It's just irrelevant. Yeah. (laughs) Right, right, right. Okay. So, if... The key is, with passwords, you have a leakage. Because of password reuse... The fact that they broke into one house means they have the same key you use in other houses. Okay. But if there's no Whereas doors on the case, house, it doesn't matter. Yeah, so because the pass keys are unique to every site, they have a public key that is useless everywhere else apart from the one site they've already broken into. Okay. Okay. Right. So the fact that they've broken into that one is is it stops the propagation of the problem. Because they got into yeah. Pajamas, uh, pajamacity.net, they don't also get into PayPal. Yeah, I don't know why that example came to your mind, Alison. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I mean, yeah, we, like, yeah. I, I, have, uh, I have a couple of test things that I've built into my one password for when I'm trying to demonstrate to people. And one of them I called pajamacity.net. And so I'm always Does getting alerts. No. So I'm always getting, al- but I'm always getting alerts from, um, uh, one password telling me that's a weak password. It's like, yes, I made it monkey on purpose because I'm trying to demonstrate something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So no, it, it's a very interesting idea, Alistair. But again, it, it's always a case of stepping back. Like it's it's a bit like questions you often hear about. Well, if someone's gotten malware onto my computer, can't they? And at which point I always go, no, no, game's over. Yeah. Game's already yes. over. <laughs> Whatever the your next is, on your is yes, right. Exactly, 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 exactly. So it's like, yeah, the, 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 you know, the, the train has left the station. Good day. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you posting that, Alistair, because I hadn't thought that through. When I read your question, I was like, yeah, wait a minute. How does that work? How is that more secure? Well, it's not because they're in there and they've got it. Yeah, yeah. It's not about authentication anymore. I don't care. They don't have to pretend to be you. They are, they are the boss. Right, right. They're everyone. They are the boss of you. <laughs> Oh, now I have Malcolm in the Middle theme song stuck in my head. Thanks, Alison. It was a blast from the past. Um, Excellent explainers. We have a wonderful community over at podfeed.com forward slash Slack where Alistair posted his question and where Sandy posted a wonderful video from René Ritchie explaining pass keys and how they are different to passwords. 
and it's it's a good video. I heard it as a podcast because I, I subscribe to Rene that way, but it's a YouTube video, so you can see little diagrams of arrows and things moving around while Rene does his talking. I thought he did a great job with the little icons. He just shows like the lock here and the open lock there, and he shows things moving back and forth. And But it's a very short video. It's maybe two or three minutes. And you look at it and you go, oh, yeah, okay, I got it. Yeah. And the great thing is, like the diagrams and stuff are cool on the video, but actually his explanation is so good that it worked really well in audio too. Okay, but you are but you already understood it. So if Fair. if somebody doesn't understand it, I think the graphics are are good. And like I said, it's a, it's it's a YouTube short, so it is quite short yeah. and it's quite pal- palatable. I like it. So it that's is. and it, it made me very 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 mildly cranky because it's portrait video and that's just wrong. But anyway, <laughs> well, I know modern people phones yada yada yada. <laughs> Get off my lawn, Bart. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. That, that's pretty much it. Um, which then takes us to our true palate cleanser, which also came from the community uh, over at podfeed.com forward slash Slack, which is a wonderful XKCD, which I think you I think you pointed it to me first. But I didn't Lots of people it, pointed it at me. I don't think I put it in Slack, so now we're missing Did who put it in okay. Slack. Oh, darn. Someone, you, you pointed me at it outside of Slack, and I sort of assumed that it had come from you, but uh, nope. anyway, the came from someone in our community, and I just realized that when I rebooted my computer, I closed Safari, so I don't actually have it in front of me. Okay. Uh, so. Tell me if you've got it pretty quickly, or I can uh, I could explain it. Hang on. Yeah, okay, right. no, Safari decided to launch quickly. That was nice of it. So it's our, you know, it's our standard top-hatted guy on X... Sorry, it's an XKCD called Redline Through HTTPS. It's our standard top-hat guy who's always wrong. Uh, he says, what does the red line through HTTPS mean? And the guy behind, or the person, the, the stick figure behind goes, oh, just that the site hasn't been updated since 2015 or so. And since it's been around that long, it means it's probably legit. <laughs> Not exactly. It's yes. close. <laughs> and then the hover text, which is always worth a look, is some organization has been paying to keep this up and hasn't, and it, ugh, let me, Stupid disappearing hover text. Some organization has been paying to keep this up and it hasn't been removed from search results. Seems like two votes of confidence to me. (laughs) Uh, Yes, it is a bizarre approach to the the missing HTTPS. It's like, anyway. So yeah, I got got always love XKCD. Very twisted. And uh, there's a new XKCD book out. And to celebrate the book coming out, he did a post of a countdown to the release of the book where every day is a way of expressing time that makes low sense, like uh, Millie Lincolns, four score and ten divided by a thousand (laughs) is a Millie Lincoln, of course. That's a lot of work Um, to come up with a hundred of them. No, no, he, he did. Uh, it was 30-day countdown. Oh, 30-day, okay. He did a month worth of it, and I, I, I read them all. It took me half a walk. Um, <laughs> but there's, there's all sorts of bizarre and funny things, like uh, 2E minutes and all these kind of things. Anyway, it's very fun. Um, so that's it's also over nice KCD. And I guess I just wanted to plug his book, which is called What If 2. Oh, okay. I read What If, and it is fantastic. I, I did make... It's probably the only book I've read on Kindle that I wish I hadn't read on Kindle, because the oh. diagrams are t- really tiny, they 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 don't display well on a Kindle. So uh, definitely go with like a, a Apple Books or maybe a physical book would even be fun. Uh-huh. Well, actually, sorry, it was more than thirty days worth. I thought it took me too long to read just thirty things. The book comes out on the thirteenth of September, and there's a countdown of every day since last Friday on that XKCD I was talking about. So that's more than thirty days. No wonder it took me so long to read. <laughs> uh, anyway, what if two is coming out soon? And you know, support Randall Monroe. He does cool stuff. Very good, very good. 
All right. Well, we managed to milk this for 40 minutes, but I think uh, I think that's probably as far as we can go. <laughs> Thanks for this, Bart. And we will actually, I don't know. Yes, I will still see you in two weeks. I'm going to sneak in just before your holiday, am I? Yep. I think I think we have one more. Excellent. Okay. Well, folks, as always, and until then, remember to stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up this week. Uh, remember, you can email me at allison at podfeed.com. But what you really need to do is you need to sit down and do some recordings. You can use any recording software you want. Uh, the microphone on the iPhone is actually a pretty good uh, recorder if you can do it all in one take. Or you can take those recordings and edit it on your Mac or your PC. Um, just do recordings for Bart and Alistair. We really need the content. Anyway, you can email me at allisonatpodfeed.com along with Alistair and Bart. And if you have a question or suggestion, just send it on over to me. You can follow me on Twitter at Podfeet. If you want to join in the conversation, man, Lewis Butler was so helpful in our Slack community. You can be in there too and get help and give help at podfeet.com slash Slack, where you can talk to me and all of the other lovely Nocilla castaways, even Bart. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. You can support the show like all of the great patrons at podfeed.com slash Patreon. Remember, very small percentage of people actually support the show, and you could be doing it too. Or you can do a one-time donation at podfeed.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.